How do we feel about the monarchy? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Matt Bufton. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Matt Bufton. Matt co-founded the Institute for Liberal Studies in 2006 and has been serving as the executive director since 2010. After graduating from the University of Windsor's Odette School of Business, he worked in marketing and project management in the insurance and software industries before returning to school to study political science at the University of Windsor and public policy at the University of Michigan. So Matt, welcome back on to The Curious Task. As always, it's a pleasure to be here, Alex. And it's great to have you on for another chat. So our question today, Matt, is how do we feel about the monarchy? Now, as you know, in each episode, we just take a question and go over the answers the conversation takes us. This is sort of a uh, a bit more of a situation where we've had similar conversations off recording about this kind of stuff. So it's almost like us presenting this, if you will, or going through a couple of things we always talk about and bringing that to recording. So instead of jumping right into the middle or the end of where we may have left things off in the past and we have chats about this kind of stuff, I want to start right at the beginning. So if we're talking about how do we, how do we, how do we feel about the monarchy, I kind of want to toss it to you first and basically say that, you know, generally you say you're sort of, quote, in favor of the monarchy, the constitutional monarchy and the kind of system we have here. We'll just say that up front. Um, but my first question to you is, you don't literally mean that you like the idea of a monarch, right? Like if we went back to like, you know, when you say you like the monarchy, like you're not talking about like if we were in feudalism, for example, and there's a absolute monarch, like you're not talking about that. Like, what do you really mean when you say like this whole monarch system actually kind of kind of works? Like what are we really talking about? Yeah, yeah. So I would uh, make it much more specific. Uh, I wouldn't say that I like the idea of the monarchy. I would like say that I like the monarchy that we have in Canada, for us, and now. So it's all very situationally, uh, you know, um, it's all situated in context. And uh, I can imagine very easily having a different opinion of a different monarchy, or even of what we have now as a monarchy at a different time. But as things go right now, I think we've got it pretty good. And the big thing is I think we should be very, very reluctant to change what we've got because we've got a pretty good thing going. Yeah, and so let's get into the the why you feel that a little bit more. And I think to do that, we should probably talk about the how exactly the you know the Canadian monar- monarchy, if you will, or or some people, and we'll get to this, even says the Canadian quote-unquote monarchy, if you will, works, because this is where the nuance is, especially for, for instance, our American friends or other friends around the world who might know, you know, we have this silly king or queen that's the head of state, but beyond that, they might not really know exactly how, for instance, all this ties together, like what our system of government really looks like and what the heck it has to do with those folks over over there in good old England. So, so why don't you just kind of, you know, take us through an overview of like how it actually works at a high level. And you can kind of, as you walk through that, sort of talk about what, what you favor about that and what, why you think it works. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I should probably preface this with saying, you know, although I've lived my entire life, I guess, as a uh, subject of, uh, of of the monarchy, I'm by no means an expert in it. So uh, if you think I've gotten something wrong in my description, uh, do let me know. But for anyone who's not familiar with how the monarchy sort of works in Canada, the, the monarch, I'm really tempted to say queen. Uh, because for my entire life and most of the life of my parents, uh, we have had a queen. And now within the past couple months, we have a king. I find that a very strange concept that I'm probably never going to be entirely used to. But we have a monarch, now a king, who is our uh, head of state uh, and largely in a figurehead sort of role. Uh, you know, the monarch has uh, responsibilities, uh, they have some powers, um, but in terms of the day-to-day government, that is handled by our head of government, uh, which is the prime minister. He has a cabinet or she has a cabinet um, and is, uh, you know, in some ways selected by the House of Commons, at least, you know, officially selected by the House of Commons, although one could argue actually selected by voters, uh, because when the voters, you know, vote for their MP, they know who the leader will be if the party that they are voting for wins. 
So we have this division of powers um, that I think is very useful and somewhat underrated, that the actual political duties are carried out by a prime minister, whereas many of the ceremonial duties, uh, you know, cutting ribbons, giving speeches and things like that, are, dead, are assigned to the monarch. And because our monarch lives on the other side of a large ocean, um, in practice, a lot of those are delegated to a person called the governor general. Uh, who will attend openings of schools and bridges and give out awards to people who have written nice books and, and things like that. Um, and I think this is a very useful kind of uh, split in, in powers and one that you don't have in countries uh, that run on a system like, say, the United States, where the head of government and the head of state are embodied in the same person. And, and just to, and just to clear that, clarify that a little further to make sure we didn't miss a nuance there. Like, so you you know the governor general, especially for those who don't know, like is someone who's um, you know a resident of Canada. They're technically the queen or king's representative uh, in Canada. And like, just for the sake of our conversation, without getting into too much constitutional logic, we can talk like a bit about it, for example. But without getting into all the nits and grits, like for the sake of our conversation, like the way you kind of view it is that sort of actual political governing line goes through all the ranking of government about up to the governor general, then kind of switches to symbolism when you have the governor general and up from the queen or king. Is that kind of a fair way that you look at it at least? Yeah, yeah, I, I say so. And I mean, it may be worth pointing out the governor general is uh, you know, technically appointed by the monarch. And in the early days of Canada, I think probably might have actually been selected by the monarch, but now is you know nominated by the prime minister and essentially chosen by the prime minister. Um, and these uh, tend not to be political figures. Some of them have been um, sort of retired politicians who managed to have a, a good reputation. Uh, but much more common would be a, you know, a former broadcaster, university president. Uh, we tried a former astronaut a little while ago. That didn't work out that well. So maybe we should stay away from astronauts for a while. Yeah, well- Little spacey, maybe those folks. Okay, that's the last terrible <laughs> pun, but I knew Matt appreciates that kind of caliber of of, of stupidity when it comes to puns. Always, <laughs> but um, yeah, and and I kind of want to. So now I wanted to. That was actually kind of a perfect segue, actually, into like how. Speaking of stupidity, some people actually think like, you know, the Canadian monarchy or the monarchy that reigns over Canada, if you will, is is kind of like, um, you know, a little bit silly and like it is kind of, um, in, in, you know, it, well, it's actually kind of just silly because, you know, you started talking about like, you know, the ceremonial aspect of it. But like we also have a couple of other fun nuances I find it's worth mentioning, too, that like sort of for, like we know one for example is that in canada like technically if a bill is passed through parliament so on and so forth we can get to that later but um you know it is technically supposed to be receive royal assent right which is then the governor general has to like you know sign for it and so on and so forth but like again without getting into like every little constitutional crisis or consideration conversation in practice i mean if the governor general isn't signing into law i mean i guess they could technically disagree with what the governing body does in parliament and so on but it, it's rare if and if at all practical for anything to actually be rejected by like the monarchistic authority at this time as well right yeah yeah i mean i would go further than that and say you know really if, if that happens that is going to provoke uh, some sort of constitutional crisis that may bring about the end of the monarchy in Canada. Uh, it happened in 1926, as our Canadian listeners who well, may remember from their uh, Canadian history classes in high school, the King Bing Affair uh, was a case in which the Governor General actually tried to uh, not uh, follow the wishes of the Prime Minister, uh, I believe when it came to uh, you know, deciding who would have the first chance, which party leader would have the first chance to form a government. It was a big deal. And uh, at that time, Canada was much closer, you know, to days of a, a monarch with uh, with real power. Um, now, it's it's almost hard to imagine there have been uh, at least one case and, and maybe a couple more cases um, in sort of recent memory where it seemed like perhaps a governor general would need to make a decision. When that happens, they have like a whole team of constitutional lawyers uh, who you know, either call in or, or come and visit them and try to decide what is the proper thing to do. So that probably the most prominent case 
place in our memory, uh, the 2008 prorogement when Stephen Harper uh, looked like he probably would have lost a motion of confidence or a vote of confidence in the House of Commons, which would have meant resigning as prime minister. Um, and, uh, and he sort of dismissed parliament or suspended parliament, I guess. Yeah, it wasn't a permanent thing, but they they sort of paused everything for two months or whatever it was. And then came back and, and he was able to maintain uh, power for a little bit longer. And some people thought that Mikhail Jean, who was the governor general at the time, uh, and the way the prime minister uh, prorogues parliament is to ask the governor general to prorogue parliament. The governor general almost always, maybe always, says yes. But there was an argument that Mikhail Jean maybe should have said no. She consulted with a whole bunch of people. You know, this was not what she thought uh, was a good idea. She is not a, a partisan figure. And the the advice that she received apparently uh, told her that she should, uh, you know, go along with, with this request. So the any decisions that are made by the governor general will tend to be very procedural sorts of things. And the governor general will have lots of very qualified advisors to help him or her decide what it is they should be doing in these cases. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a great example for those, again, especially for those who aren't familiar, just to stop here and say, like, uh, for this whole Canadian monarchy situation, again, here's a fun sort of uh, contradiction, if you will, silliness, where, like, you, you again see here that, I guess, on the one hand, you know, we have this theoretical sort of constitutional structure where it's, hey, like, you know, the government or the House of Commons will do something, pass a bill, or, or you know, for instance, there's a request from the Prime Minister, Prorogue Parliament, whatever it is, um, you know, and officially uh, what's happening is you're supposed to get the uh, permission and uh you know or the sign off of the governor general who's the queen's representative canada but in reality as you were saying if the governor general isn't doing what the prime minister and the governing body wants that that would actually trigger some sort of constitutional crisis or problem yeah yeah exactly i mean i think one way of looking at it is classical liberals will sometimes talk about wanting uh, the rule of law over the rule of men so we want to have predictable things we want when a big decision has to be made, that it will not be just made at the whim of whoever happens to be in power, but it will be based on laws and precedents. Any big decision that a governor general is going to make is going to be more of that type of decision based on careful study and analysis, we hope, of of precedents and laws and uh, these things, conventions, um, and not just going to be uh, the sort of whim of whatever the executive of the day might uh, desire. So generally, that was kind of us tracing like how this sort of works, some of the contradictions, some of the symbolism versus the uh, the, the practicality, you know, the, the ceremonial stuff, like, you know, separated from the uh, the day-to-day governing and the actual passing of legislation and so on. And I'm kind of leaving a parliamentary, especially for the Canadian folks who might be thinking, why is he not getting into this? But I'm going to leave some more specific parliamentary discussion for a little later. But, but for right now, I kind of want to, you know, shift gears a little bit into, okay, so having traced that, um, then... When it comes to that interaction between that sort of theoretical, constitutional, symbolic structure of this whole idea that Canada is under this monarchy, um, and then at the end of the day, all the politicking and all the governing is handled by the uh, House of Commons, and therefore, you know, the head of government is the prime minister and so on and so forth. Why Why do you think it's good or why do you favor or think it's, you know, it seems to be working pretty well, that interaction between that head of state and that sort of governing body situation? Is it just the symbolism that, you know, the prime minister isn't the head of like that in itself has benefits? Like when we actually get into the weeds, like what do you think that actually practically does that that's good? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination. Part of it is the institutions that we have, the rules and conventions surrounding how the monarch will behave, right? Because on paper, our monarch could be quite interventionist in terms of, you know, vetoing laws that our parliament passes or, you know, uh, pressuring parliament to pass a law that he or she thought should be passed. We don't have that happen in practice that's partly conventions now it's you know become a convention i think it's also partly a result of the you know personalities of the people who have held the uh position of monarch and in particular uh the very long reign of queen elizabeth ii um and uh you know i have to say i, I think she did a very good job of, of being queen which can be a difficult job uh, and this is part of the reason i couch my support for the monarchy as uh, you know particular to a time and place because it's very easy for me to imagine that we might not get so lucky with future monarchs and i think there are two sort of principal dangers 
um, that could threaten the what I consider the good deal we have with the monarchy in Canada. One is a string of monarchs who are too popular. Um, you know, Queen Elizabeth II was very popular. Uh, fortunately, she had no designs on expanding her influence. But if we had someone with her level of, uh, you know, people felt this respect and affection for, and that person wanted to be more influential in day-to-day politics of, uh, of the nation, um, then that could present a real problem. Um, so we need someone who is, uh, you know, not uh, trying to influence and meddle in politics. Uh, and we want someone who's not going to be pressured to, because we also imagine someone who doesn't want to get involved, maybe, but the people think that that person is so wonderful and so great that we need the benefit of his or her, you know, magnificent leadership and, and you know, really demand that they step up and take a more active role. Now, we don't want that. The other problem is we could have a string of quite bad monarchs, and King Charles might be one of these, right? There's a lot of people who were not huge fans of King Charles who did like Queen Elizabeth quite a lot. Um, And uh, if we have sufficiently bad monarchs, well, they might be bad because they try to intervene. Um, And I think it's fair to say that King Charles is, at least in some areas, things like climate change and and, uh, certain environmental and poverty issues, um, more of an activist um, figure than his mother was. How that plays out, whether that continues while he is king, we will have to see. But having someone step in that and be unpopular could lead to us saying, you know what, this is not working. Uh, and especially if it's a chain of you know, several people in a row who are unpopular and are trying to bring in things or even just generally not liked, then it's quite easy for me to imagine that the Canadian people might say, you know what, this thing's out, out of date. We need to change. Let's become a republic. Let's elect a, a, pr- a president uh, to fill the role of what the governor general does. Um, and, you know, maybe that would work out for the best, but I'm a big proponent of if it's not broke, don't fix it. Um, you know, we've got pretty good government in Canada, and I would be worried that making a change could get us to a worse rather than a better place in terms of governance. Let's further that thought then. Like, what would be worse? And then obviously, it's uh, sort of just begging to be explored. Well, you know, we talk about, well, we could end up with a president. You sort of off, I mentioned, maybe that would be better, but, you know, it might end up worse. I actually think for a couple different reasons, that exact style of a presidency would be a lot worse. So I think we're going to be in agreement there, even though we might disagree on elsewhere on this topic. But I want you to further that thought. So like, why? I know you said there's ain't broke, don't fix it, because there are a lot of, as far as, um, you know, modern, you know, for just sake of the broad term, liberal democracies are concerned, having this type of system you're saying is working pretty good relative to the way others could, you know, uh, for example. So I think like, uh, unless, unless I'm wrong, I'm hearing there's probably a couple of good ways you might present some critiques about the United States and the way that, uh, you know, so-called presidency could work. I mean, like, or, or the way the so-called presidency does work. And I say so-called because like, you know, to me, one of my critiques is that, um, and maybe this is one of yours too, that people seem to treat uh, that position a little more uh, kingly, if you will, than even our own, our head of government, the the prime ministership. So like, again, furthering your thought about like, you know, beyond ain't broke, don't fix it. Why do you think it could actually end up worse if we say, you know what, we're the Republic of Canada, the prime minister is now the head of state, no further than that, that's the top guy or gal. Yeah, and I think the the real danger is sort of a cult of personality, similar to what I think we see in the U.S. And and you know, it's, it's not a sudden thing. Uh, you know, it was really obvious with uh, with Donald Trump uh, during his presidency. I think yeah, this sort of you know really just polarizing figure that some people think is wonderful, other people think is terrible. Um, but I mean, that has been something that's been developing. Um, in the U.S. for for a long time, I think increasing, you know, um, both the power just vested in in the American president, and and then going along with that, this polarization, which I I think is a real concern. So we want to have a system where we're not that wedded to you know the person who is the the head of um, head of state or head of government. So you know separating those two. I think does a lot of good work. And I think one thing we should do is look around at the systems of government. And I mean, you and I are, you know, classical liberals, I'm going to say, with anarchist sympathies. And so I'm always cautious about saying Canada is well governed because there's a lot of things the Canadian government does that I don't like. And I know they do a lot of things that you don't like. But if we're going to take a more practical approach and look at you know governments around the world, we'd probably agree that, hey, by the standards of you know governments, Canada's a pretty good one. 
And we can look around at other countries. I mean, Switzerland, uh, as an example, I'm looking now at the Cato Institute's Human Freedom Index, which is a project they work on with uh, in jointly with the Fraser Institute right. uh, here in Canada. As well uh, as the Economic so, Freedom Index, which is great. So people should go check that out. Yes, too. yes. And they, this is sort of a, an outgrowth. There's the Economic Freedom Index. The Human Freedom Index then captures some things that are not captured in the Economic Freedom Index. And Rule Index. of Law is one of them. And we'll probably come back to that. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, the country that does the best uh, on this index is Switzerland. Um, Switzerland is uh, is a republic, um, you know, with a really interesting model of decentralized governance uh, with a strong federalist system. Uh, and if you and I were Swiss, then I would by no means saying, you know, what we should do is we should switch to a monarchy and have a king or queen, have someone wear a crown. Uh, you know, the Swiss system is uh, is pretty good. Um, but the countries that follow Switzerland, uh, Switzerland include uh, New Zealand, Denmark, uh, Canada, Australia, Sweden, and, and Luxembourg. That's not all of them, but that's a, a list of the ones there that uh, do, I believe, all have monarchs. And of course, several of those countries, uh, Australia and New Zealand, share our monarch. Um, and so this monarchical, monarchical system that we've got has produced some of the freest countries uh, in the world, you might argue that actually means sort of some of the freest uh, human societies that have existed in our history. Um, and so there's something that seems to be going right. Uh, and even if we look at what's designed and, and maybe look at it on paper, if we were founding a country and you said, what we've got to do is we've got to get a family yeah, they might even be from here, right? Because the British royal family is actually like a German family. Um, and all the royal families of Europe are sort of intermarried and often, you know, uh, to some degree foreigners in the country that they rule over. I would say that seems like a really weird system. And I don't think we should uh, we should do that. But through some sort of historical accident, it's worked out pretty well. Um, and uh, if we look at what's happened in terms of presidential countries, republics, which is going to be, you know, most of the countries founded in the 20th century. I don't have stats on that, but I feel comfortable saying a lot of, you know, countries that, uh, you know, put together their constitutional structures in the 20th century went with a Republican model. I don't think the results are as good as uh, as what we have in terms of a constitutional monarchy. Mm. And that. And actually, I was going to ask another question, but we're about that time to take a break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Matt Bufton today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Yakov Mikhailovich, Scott Scheel, and Ben Hobbs. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Matt Bufton today. So, Matt, I thought the first half was great. We explored a lot, traced sort of how that, you know, monarchy uh, that Canada exists within and that whole system works. And we talked about some of the benefits and we were just on that train of thought. Uh, you were sort of ended, ending off as, as you were saying that if someone theoretically said, hey, let's start a country having, like you said, a, a family of people, some be effectively the... Um, the uh the the leaders of the country or the, the the big cheese is the end of the line where the buck stops kind of thing either symbolically or real would probably not be the way it would be drawn out but you said that's kind of what we have and you know in the human freedom index you know if if people do uh put worth and value onto that kind of thing it seems that those countries are measuring quite high i noticed you didn't get to naming the uh, united states yet as we were going down the list if you would kindly tell us where they're actually ranking because we often hear that that is the uh, number one place for economic and human freedom, but not according to these folks at the Cato Institute and the other folks that work on the study. So why don't we fill in that gap for as well? Because I know we have a lot of American listeners. Yeah, yeah. The U.S. is tied with uh, Germany and Japan at uh, number 15 on uh, on this index. And, and I should perhaps just mention, because I realize now I named Ireland in there, and I realize Ireland does not currently have a monarchy. Uh, but of course, I threw Ireland in with those other countries because for a portion of their history, um, yeah, it was a colonial government. So it wasn't exactly a government that, that they chose, but it's part of their history, part of the institution's that they have. And uh, according to our friends at the Cato Institute, uh, Ireland is uh, quite a free place. Uh, I've never been there, but I've heard good things. Mm. Yeah, some food for thought there for sure. So so yeah, and, and one thing I want to kind of kind of wanted to p- pivot into is that 
Uh, again, and we're always speaking on like a relative scale here. I mean, we can do like sort of an idealistic episode about the way me and Matt might want to say, hey, wouldn't this order of things be good and not as far and certainly wouldn't be people being in in charge of things probably but but at the end of the day i mean like we're talking in that practical relative to other countries and what we're dealing with we have a world full of governments what's better and what's not so we're kind of in that train of thought there so within that kind of context relatively as well I want to get a little further into sort of our parliamentary system a little bit, and I'll throw a couple things out there that I think is good, relatively speaking, about the Canadian parliamentary system, especially when it comes to prime minister, and maybe you could riff off that or tell me if you agree or disagree, and I'm sure there's other points that you think are connected to this. Like, So so one thing to me, and, I, and I've, I've received pushback on this from some other folks that say, well, you know, oftentimes, for example, question period or the way debate structure in parliament anyway is largely symbolic and doesn't really matter, so they think the point I'm about to say is not very relevant, but I actually think it's something key which is that at the end of the day, um, unlike an American uh, president who uh, you know lives in like a very, very famous house and gets to go address uh, you know the, the legislative branch and things like that and, and uh, be treated the way we all see that person being treated, we have a prime minister who is a head of government, and after you know if their party wins enough seats and they're the leader of that party, they become that prime minister. I've always thought it's a very good thing. There's actually some practical effects too, but even just symbolically, that that person at the end of the day, even though they get a nice chair at the front, in the front row, they still have to sit in the legislative branch with a bunch of people, answer questions, be heckled, sit up, uh, stand up, I should say, sit down. Uh, when the Speaker of the House, who's basically the moderator of the House, for those who might not know, stands up, uh, they're actually in charge of the procedure of the House, so then the Prime Minister has to sit down and shut up if the Speaker of the House stands up. I think that's all, relatively speaking, quite a healthy thing for the sort of psychology of that position when people actually look at it and how things work. Um, not sure if you agree, disagree, want to add, subtract, but I think when it comes to literally how the Parliament works itself, this to me is actually one of the key things about the symbolism of the way I'm not even talking about how it interacts with the monarchy right now. I'm talking about the fact that this sort of ranking of the governing body sits sort of at this level underneath within a process rather than feeling like we have a, you know, the prime minister is a king sitting above it when he's actually, he or she's one of the people actually participating in the legislative process. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think by and large, I agree with everything you said there. I, I think the American example is interesting because sort of, you know, they're in some ways a country founded on the idea of not having a king. Uh, and yet, if you look at the power and all of the trappings and the show and the pomp and circumstance that goes into the American presidency, it is arguably more king-like than any, any actual king or queen uh, or any other system in the world. Um, and I think that there's value in the fact, you know, our prime minister uh, can be removed by uh, their caucus, uh, not as directly as in other countries like the UK or Australia. Uh, but a prime minister does have to keep their caucus happy to uh, to a certain extent. Otherwise, they'll f- feel pressure. I think probably Jean Chrétien was the last sort of Canadian prime minister who was sort of pushed aside uh, by, as a result of his caucus sort of moving to decide that it was Paul Martin's turn to uh, to take over. Um, and we just have, you know, I think a much more you know relaxed and and I guess healthy, I would say, relationship with our head of government. Um, you know, I, I live in Ottawa. Um, I uh, work downtown, and uh, you know, I'm not far from the prime minister's uh, residence or the prime minister's office. Um, and yet, I don't think I've ever been inconvenienced by having his movements, you know, between those two places or around the city. Barack Obama came here in 2016. And I don't know if you had a problem with this, but to me, like the city was shut down for like a week. Yeah. Um, the man had to go get a cookie downtown and we had to like shut down the whole place. <laughs> exactly. Right. And I mean, I've spoken to friends in DC who they say, you know, they're, they're going out for dinner. They want to go to somewhere. And like the vice president has decided they want to have dinner at that place. Um, and so, you know, reservations get canceled or they do security checks on everybody. And there's all these like armed guards in there and stuff like that and i mean of course we have security around our prime minister but it's nothing like what is done on the scale of the american president and i think that's a good thing 
Mm-hmm. And even like, you know, just another thought that came out of that. I mean, you mentioned like, you know, just, just the vice president wants to go to dinner. So we're like, let alone the president and we're, we're shutting down a bunch of stuff too. There seems to be like this trickle down effect with the way people feel about the house of commons or the way that, you know, the parliament even works like many Canadians, like, of course, you know, you're going to get some people that, it, you know, when push comes to shove, they could say, okay, this person's that position, whatever. And of course, everybody most people know the prime minister and so on and so forth. But from there, even like beyond the prime minister and perhaps the um, the leader of the opposition, when you get into things like deputy prime minister, who's in this position, where that ranking is, you know, one might spend so much time, you know, like with this, as you said, there's, there's, there's sort of this reverence and this cult of personality in this way, like the president and the vice president are looked at in the States. You know, it's again, like I'll say, it's like the president and the vice president. And then in Canada, the tone sort of the, the prime minister and like, Wait, who's the deputy prime minister again? Like, I mean, obviously, if you're a political wonk or or even, you know, like sort of like you want to be an educated voter, you would know that offhand. But it, it's it's still very like as soon as you get below that ranking of prime minister, it's not like this whole like, you know, one heartbeat away from the presidency type talk. You know, it's very people are like, yeah, ah, yeah those guys over there, they're, they're doing stuff in the House of Commons. And that, you know, there's the prime minister. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the deputy prime minister is a sort of position without a lot in the way of real meaning, right? Uh, I I don't think there's even always a deputy prime minister. Sometimes there is. um, But that actually just means the prime minister is saying, you know, I'm going to give this person some ceremonial power to run meetings when I'm not there, right? Right. If the prime minister dies, there's no such thing as a deputy prime minister who uh who gets the takeover um and on the you know fact of canadians not knowing a lot of these political figures my favorite example of this is in 2011 the canadian election survey asked uh canadians who was the minister of finance and more i would say more than the deputy prime minister the minister of finance is going to tend to be the number two person um in a canadian federal government um and at the time it was jim flaherty uh at that time he had been minister of finance for five years so this i'm going to say the second highest political office in the country uh for five years another time 25 percent of canadians could name the minister of finance um some people will bemoan that as a tragedy of civic education in Canada. But I think it's a good reflection of the fact that, uh, you know, we do not put these people on pedestals. We do not exalt them any more than uh, necessary. Um, And uh, in many cases, they don't have a lot of control and interaction of our day-to-day lives. I mean, more certainly than you and I would like them to, but less so than their counterparts in many other countries would have. It even seems it even seems to be a little bit, and I think this is actually changing slightly now, at least I think, um, maybe we'll get into that in a sec, because I think, um, recently especially within the last few years uh perhaps it's also the way you know justin trudeau has run his public image and so on and so forth i do find there's a lot more um you know justin trudeau versus pair polyev type talk for example you know i will get into that in a sec i think it's that is actually a little more scary uh than people not knowing some names actually like i think we're actually heading towards a bit of that feeling or vibe in a conversation with other canadians that we are sort of talking about a presidential position you know am i voting for trudeau are you voting for pierre polyev and i'm always that wiener in the conversation that says you can't vote for either unless you're in their riding so haha you know but i think that's actually serious because without going into the future because i think we're actually heading towards a problem if we go down that path i seem to recall and you are you know of course a little older than me but but i even remember that the the, the language that I've been exposed to when I was thinking about this stuff and when other people talk about it, it was very party oriented, right? You know, the conservatives are doing this, the liberals are doing that. And of course in the States, you know, people are, there are lots of diehard Republicans and uh, Democrats, but above that, you still have this presidential figure. Um, but, but here I find that you kind of get, yes, we have a prime minister and people either like them or don't like them, but the logic is still that they sort of represent that sort of, they're sort of like the tip of the iceberg on a larger package of a party governing. Um, it seems, I'm not, I know it's like, sounds like I'm splitting a hair or not, but I think there actually is a nuance there that's quite interesting. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I think that's right, that I prefer that uh, we not have you know more a cult of personality than we're going to need to. I mean, of course, these people are going to be famous when they you know, are in the contention of you know, being prime minister or uh, the possibility of being elected prime minister. They'll be well known. People will tend to have strong feelings 
about them, but there are degrees of that. And I would rather it be on a milder degree than, than the you know, more intense degree. I will say, I think these things are to some degree cyclical. You might be a little too young to really remember this, but uh, when Paul Martin, who I mentioned earlier, took over as the liberal prime minister in, I think it was 2004, it was about that time. Um, he was personally quite popular. The liberal party, there had been some scandals. They'd been in power for, uh, you know, 10 years, uh, approximately at that time at the federal level um, under Jean Chrétien. And there was quite a move to brand the liberals in what would have been the 2004 federal election as the Paul Martin team. And so there were election signs in, in the city that I lived in at the time where the word liberal was quite small. The word like team Paul Martin was big on there for the candidates. Um, but you go forward to like 2008, I think, is the election when Stefan Dion is the leader of the Liberal Party. He is then seen as sort of like less popular than the party itself. And so the party brand becomes stronger. So I think the politicians, maybe a bit of an ego thing, maybe it's a correct strategic call, are often looking at putting their name front and center above the party. But in many cases, at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, they're going to realize or their team will realize the party is actually better known and perhaps better liked than they are. And in those cases, that dynamic will reverse. Mm -hmm. So although I worry about politics of personality, uh, I don't worry that we are just moving in a one way uh, negative direction on that. I think there's it's, we see dips and uh, bends on that. Mm, that's a fair point. And I also think, too, that some of this, the, the reverence and the cult of personality sort of is another thing that sort of gets offloaded and deferred if you will to the the symbolic monarchy because you know i remember you know when the queen died and stuff i you know frankly it's a little weird to me i mean maybe people are sad and era's ending and people in the macro might be you know feel the way they feel i'm not gonna get into that too much right now but you know like they interviewed someone on the radio who had had, had never met the queen um and had just went on and on and on about how um got a little creepy at times they felt they were like in communication with them and always connected to them and they were tearing up and they referred to their collection of plates on the wall with her face and stuff and i said okay you know whatever brings you comfort at night but that's that's cult of personality at the end of the day and that seems like a lot of people actually do have that around had that or had that around the queen and who knows like you said who knows with this king if that'll be transferred but we'll put that aside for a sec but but at the end of the day you have that going on and then a lot of people just look at the prime minister as a guy or a gal just in a, in sort of formal attire just standing up and sitting down in a parliament so again i think that's where there is cult of personality and that sort of vibe in canada but it's like transferred somewhere else and it's not yes. the people making legislation so it's not that it's not there it's just there's yeah. less of it i find i think yeah it's it, it's it's less of it and it's i would say sort of you know put in the place where it can perhaps do the least harm Right. Because right. you look at the tendency to have that in the U.S. And then what happens when you have this situation as you know, they've had uh, you know, a couple of years ago where the president says, you know, the election was illegitimate. Um, and, you know, you have this duty to not recognize the results of the election that we just had. If you have that sort of reverence for the president as an American, then. You know, you're perhaps in a difficult spot or perhaps you're just in a spot that's not difficult for you, but you might be doing some things um, that aren't going to be great. Whereas when we can put that in in the queen, right, you can be as loyal to the queen, you can love the queen, you can have all of the like posters and teacups and sort of those things with her image on them. Um, but she has so little power. Um, that it uh, you know makes that a safer place. And I will say, one of the things I like in Canada, I think we've got a great deal that she lives in another country. So she's that one step removed. It's one step harder, I think, to imagine her actually, or you know, now the king, uh, him actually grasping power uh, here rather than over in the United Kingdom. Um, and also, yeah, we get really cost savings. The British government pays a lot more for the institution of the monarchy than we do. Um, I think we've got a great deal in terms of what it actually costs us to have the British monarch as our head of state. It's like bargain basement rates, um, and we. <laughs> get a pretty good one yeah that's great it's, a, it's sort of the 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 no frills uh you know cheaper sort of uh option no name brand of of uh prices of having a, a name brand if you will um but uh you know and then that's that's a really good point and it actually brings me to another one which is um we sort of skirted it but didn't get directly into it you know if you if we do have people with this sort of cult of personality reverence you know teacups with faces on it t-shirting uh you know 
in Canada too, it's like, again, we have the head of government is one thing, but really that's just a person that kind of works effectively like another type of bureaucrat is the way people, most people think of our head of government. And then there's all this reverence in the queen's face all over the place too. It seems to me that one kind of thing that that has an effect on as well is that people don't think of the uh, prime minister as somebody uh, so far above, for instance, a lot of like the institutions, like Elections Canada, for instance. Like I can't even recall a time, you know, we talked about the legitimacy of elections, for instance, where um, it might have even got close to a point where if just the prime minister, who has one of many chairs in parliament, got up and started talking about, you know, uh, the legitimacy of Elections Canada, like if that you know, that would be such a, a full paw across all party lines that just this, this dude over here is talking about these guys over here that are supposed to be doing their jobs. Like that would set off its own kind of political like waves. Not, not because it wouldn't be politically feasible for someone to maybe have that kind of talking point. It just seems like it's something that's just not done under this arrangement. Like you don't go after elections, Canada, you know, you're the prime minister, you stand up and sit down, do your thing. We're the bureaucrats over here. It doesn't feel as sort of uh, tied in sort of like a pyramid of a command structures you have under the presidency where, you know, you got the president here, the FBI over here and so, so on and so forth. You kind of see what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think one way that we see this reflected is in the titles that we used to refer to these people. So yeah, point, in the point. U.S., uh, you know, when you are the president, you are continued to be referred to as Mr. President after you were no longer the president, and, you know. <laughs> When, when and if they have a female president, I guess, Madame President. Um, but, you know, Bill Clinton stopped being president uh, over 20 years ago. And that whole time, he's been Mr. President. He's followed around by security uh, for life. He has all of these sort of trappings of, uh, of power. Um, and, uh, you know, if we look back to our prime minister who retired about that time, Jean Crecce, my understanding is Jean Crecce uh, is, uh, has an office at a law firm in Montreal. He's getting quite old now. But, uh, you know, and he would have an apartment or a house and he would walk from his house to his law firm uh, every day. And he is no longer, you know, we don't even, we don't so much use the term Mr. Prime Minister. We use it more than I think we should. Yeah. Um, but to the degree that it's used, it is not used and should not be used on people who no longer hold that office. And I think that's a healthy thing. Yeah. I have a fun memory. I was with my aunt at the Rideau Center downtown. And for those of you who don't know, it's basically just basically think of it as like a shopping center downtown effectively like there's offices and stuff in there but anyway um basically like uh i was just getting like a bagel and uh and like i you know it just kind of a similar story that people just walking around my aunt's like hey look it's joe clark who's like a former prime minister and the guy's just literally walking out the door with a copy of the globe and mail like nobody like you know just looking like a dude probably heading to whatever office he was doing on his lunch break it's just some dude like you know yep like yeah, no, no big, no big train. However, speaking of trains and people following him, when the queen or king does come to town, that's a whole si- different situation, isn't it? It is, although I'm trying to think if I've been in Ottawa while that has happened. I mean, part of my sort of argument that it's quite cheap for us, like they don't come that often, right? So I'm not sure exactly how often we get a royal visit, but it seems like it's every three to five years or something like that. I mean, certainly that's going to gonna cost us money and, and be a bit of a um, production. Um, but I would rather, in terms of the inconvenience to my life, I think I'd say I would rather have a, uh, a royal visit to come to Ottawa rather than having the U.S. president come to yeah. Ottawa in terms of what it's going to do to daily life in the city. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think it's a good thing symbolically when like uh, something silly happens, like a, a member of the royal family, like the queen or king, for example, is pulled up and wherever in front of wherever with a wagon and then they get out and then the prime minister has to like defer themselves and sort of show symbolically oh hello your match like do you think that that's kind of like a continuing part of the idea like hey that's a regular dude and then there's all that you can you can defer all your symbolism and your your sort of uh yeah you know, cult of personality elsewhere yeah, i mean that, that may be part of it it's one of these things where like it's a complicated thing and if if you wrote down the plan on paper to run this constitutional monarchy I'm not sure that it would sound like a great idea, right, if we didn't have examples of this. So why exactly does it work? I'm not confident that I I know the precise mechanisms that make it work, Um, but I'm confident that it does seem to work pretty well. Um, and that lack of understanding, I don't, and I, it's not just me. I don't think anyone understands precisely why it is that, you know, our prime ministers are, are glorified far less than, uh, than presidents in other countries. And since we don't fully understand it, that's one of those reasons that I would like to keep our hands off it and just maintain what we've got. And it's also another thing too, that, and I think this is actually happening again, 
things are changing. I think it's at this point in time in the United States, it seems to be a little bit more fair game and people care about a little less for a variety of polarization reasons. But um, you never hear, for instance, if someone were to critique the prime minister, um, somebody like say something like, well, you have to respect the office at least. I've never, ever yeah, ever, ever, ever heard that in my life as a kid. I've heard things, similar things. Like I've heard people generally talk, you know, about like, well, you know, you have to be that the person is in such and such position. You have to talk respectful. But again, that sort of reverence idea. Whereas I do have a lot of like memories of you know debate on TV or whatever else that this was like sort of like no, no, you got to respect our head of state. That's the president in the United States. You have yeah. to respect the off, it's not even them. respect the office, respect them. Da 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 da. da. There seems to be some sort of thing that you know after you run a very hyper partisan feeling type election and all of a sudden someone's supposed to at least respect the office and always you know now the election's over now we all have to you know sort of kneel down or bow to this guy and basically say you know that seems to like be a hard thing for people to sort of have a bit of cognitive dissonance on down there but to me it's just always been one thing here in canada which is like yeah critiquing this person is totally fair game like nobody ever has stopped anyone, at least that I, in my experience, to basically say, well, you know, well, first of all, watch your mouth about the prime minister. It's more like, eh, okay. Yeah, yeah, well, I think you get those things of like the idea that you know, the president is everybody's president, and then some people saying, you know, not my president, sort of, that, that sort of conversation doesn't tend to happen, I agree with you, regarding our prime ministers. And I think this is all sort of this, you know, relatively healthy um, you know, um, concept attitude that Canadians tend to have uh, towards our government that perhaps you know is not uh, held in the U.S., which is interesting because it goes against a lot of commonly accepted attitudes. I mean, I think a lot of people, if you were taking a political science one-on-one class, then the professor said in Canada we are more deferential to authority, and Americans are more independent and skeptical of governmental authority. I think a lot of people would agree with that. Yeah, a lot of people would say, yeah, that's a general statement. They trace it back to, oh, that's how the country is found. Like some people just say that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, I, and I don't think that's wrong, but I do think it is a complicated issue because in some ways it's true and in some ways it's not true. Uh, exactly. And, and I think like, um, you know, I might be even less charitable than you and say like in some way, in some ways I actually think it's wrong because like, you know, um, I think back to the idea that, you know, the prime minister is ultimately like a, a member of parliament that happens to be the head of their party or caucus. And then therefore, if they get the most seats, they are the prime minister, like, you know, the top minister in parliament. Uh, basically, I think that, you know, um, there's sort of this acceptance that although people understand, yes, that person is literally the prime prime minister for Canada, like everyone would accept that um, because that's the, the, the position that they've won effectively in election. Um, the fact that this whole thing is still run through the parliamentary system with different parties and so on, people seem to live with the fact a bit more. Yeah, they, they are my prime minister in the sense that I didn't vote for that party. I actually voted for this other member of parliament and this other party. Um, so in that sense, they're not my prime minister. But on the other side, yeah, no, they are the prime minister, of course. Great. It seems like those two things settle with people a little easier under this system, at least in my experience. And um, and then they're more than happy to be either hyper-partisan or very passionate about their specific member of parliament in their area or they think their party is the one that actually is going to, you know, set the government straight or right the path or whatever. Um, but you, but you still don't have this sort of, uh, like you said, this whole like weird tension between like, you know, that's everyone's prime minister. You got to like, you know, respect that people seem to, uh, feel a little more intuitively under this system that like just having that sort of push and pull in parliament between parties or people in different power positions, that's just part of the game. And sometimes it's one person's turn in another kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I, I wonder if, if, you know, maybe part of the story here is the way that our members of parliament uh, behave, right? Because a prime minister, as you pointed out, is, you know, essentially just one of those members of parliament. And, uh, you know, these are people who, um, you know, are elected in from communities, the neighborhoods that tend to be something a neighborhood of 100,000 people, and they go to pancake breakfast and Lions Club meetings and go to parades and things like that. Because they have you to win to their riding. I think that's what all yeah. people forget. Like, they have to, like, I mean, okay, well, there actually have been, I think, I think maybe something like Brian, there have been parachute candidate kind of situations where, like, I think, anyway, long story short, at the end of the day, the prime minister has to win their riding most of the time. They're a member of parliament first, ultimately. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah, they have to have to win their riding, and they have to, you know, again, I'm, I'm not sure that anyone has completely come in from outside. They might come into a new riding, but they've, I think all the prime ministers would have represented another riding previously and sort of come right. up through that sort of right. system. And they will be in some ways a little bit closer to the people they represent. Then again, I, I keep on talking about Trump, um, which I feel slightly bad about. Uh, but he's sort of the best, maybe this best example of that, of someone who's so distant because he's been, you know, this uh, titan of industry. We won't get into all of the uh, business practices things, but, you know, people wouldn't have run into Donald Trump somewhere unless you live in New York. Yeah. Or Whereas, actually another great example is like Ross yeah. Perot, right? Like someone who's yeah. like, this is like, oh, call the son. I'm a businessman. I'm here. I'm going to write the ship. Da, 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 da. I mean, Ross Perot, uh, when he was running as that candidate back, back at the time, like did, didn't, you know, work his way up. Uh, okay. I got to go win this local election so I can sit in the Congress and then maybe have a shot at like, you know, becoming president. As he said, it, that's, a, yeah. that's a very subtle thing that I think make, does make a difference as far as, like you said, this guy's got a. Some of these folks, they got they got to win their uh, they got to win their voters over. They got to go to the pancake breakfast in the Lions Club in in their rural area or whatever it is, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, our prime minister, you know, currently uh, Justin Trudeau was a substitute teacher for several years. Um, now he was also the son of a former prime minister, um, but. He spent time, you know, going in when Mr. Jones was uh, sick or whatever. And it seems there must be hundreds and maybe thousands of people in this country uh, who recall a time when uh, their class was taught by the person who is now a prime minister uh, of the country. Um, And I don't know this for sure, but maybe that gives us a little bit of a grounding, a little bit of a down-to-earthism that combats some of that cult of personality we see uh, south of the border. Yeah, I mean, like, when we talk about the House of Commons, symbolically, even detached, the fact it's under the monarchy and part of this this web in the system we're talking about, I mean, that's what's supposed to be, right? The people, in, in, at least today, like, you know, everybody is supposed to be able to uh, participate in that commons process, right? We're supposed to be the commoners that like, governing the land. So, like, it, it's, it's kind of, like, seems to be part of that little, you know, that, that little part of that, that DNA. Um, you know, even, you know, we talked about the founding of the United States, and, you know, the idea was, like, that's supposed to be the idea that there is no king. A lot of people say it, but there also were people at the time where there was tensions between other factions thought well no, George Washington would make a fine king if we could start out with that so even that was still there a little bit and he was very revered as well so you know they, of course they did end up settling on the title of president but I mean even there's still that strands of this person deserves this high level of reverence therefore they're deserving of the presidency there's there's still that there yeah yeah, and there's actually this interesting story about the title of uh, you know the office of president, um, because now it's everywhere. But at the time of the American founding, it was not. It was a term that was either seldom used or maybe not really used at all. And they were trying to figure out what to call the head of the new country. They were forming, and king was a popular option, but there was also pushback against having king. And so we t- we call it president. Um, but my understanding is actually a more correct pronunciation might be president, uh, because the uh, president was the one who would preside over the meetings that they were that were taking place, um, and uh, and you know sort of be that you know governor of the the meeting, and you know, maybe you know, weighing in on votes and things like that. And of course, the the vision of the American founding was much more that it would be run by the uh, House of Representatives, um, and maybe to a lesser degree the the senators to stop any sort of runaway uh, whims of democracy or things like that. But the system has become much more heavily focused on that office of president than was intended, um, which is just one of those interesting things, I think, about, you know, we have systems of government in, in countries around the world. Many of them are different from what was expected. Many of them haven't worked out as planned. And I'm, I'm sort of saying this a lot, but I'll, I'll say it one more time, that this is why I would be so nervous about changing the system that we've got. It's not because I don't believe a better system might be possible. Again, I think the Swiss system uh, looks really great from what I understand of it. But do we think that we could design a system that would get rid of some of the silliness, some of the aspects of monarchy that we don't like that I know tend to sort of, you know, uh, grind your gears uh, in terms of the the idea that someone is just born and they get to wear a metal hat and that somehow entitles them to all of these titles and respect and lands and wealth and and things like that. But if we're going to replace it, we've got to replace it with something. And I have so little faith that we would come up with a better system than what we've got. 
Yeah, and I know I understand your perspective for sure. And I would say that, like, again, in the conversation, uh, without getting into the ideal part of it, I think in the conversation of relative to, you know, other examples that currently exist and so on and so forth or things, you know, with, without throwing out the whole thing and saying, okay, let's, you know, let's start fresh. If, if you're, you're, if you are to still have a parliamentary democracy ultimately and so on and so forth, what kind of arrangement, you know, be it the symbolism stuff or the, you know, the de facto power would work. I would, I actually do agree that like, you know, for whatever weird set of reasons, we ended up with a better system, um, for a lot of the reasons we've talked about here as well, whether it be like, you know, the symbolic people, how people revere stuff, how they think about it. I would say it's definitely a healthier relationship with the head of government here um, in Canada that people have in their brains um, than, uh, than, you know, for instance, the way people have with their head of government and state in the United States. I absolutely agree with that from a, from a relative perspective for sure. Um, I, th- you know, I think there's some trends that I think are a little worrying, especially with the Justin Trudeau, Pierre Polyev thing right now, um, both in how their quote unquote fans, if you will, will talk about them and how on the opposite side, their opponents will talk about them. I think it's actually not good fuel, uh, for even sort of opponents to sort of give that much reverence to Justin Trudeau, for example, and say, Justin's up to this. It's like, no, like <laughs> we should probably not talk like that. Um, but, but, you know, but overall, I will agree at the point from a practical perspective. Um, it's, 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 it's relatively speaking, working out all right. Um, and I, you know, our time's winding down here, uh, but I, but I, we do have a bit more, I was going to throw sort of a bonus topic in, which is like not the exact same, but sort of related to, but like, you know, for instance, the Canadian Senate is one of those paper versus reality things, right? Like on paper, is it a good idea? Those who don't know, we'll trace it real quick for uh, when there is a vacancy in the Senate um, for the prime minister to be the one to appoint the senator and have that confirmed by the governor general, shouldn't we have the upper house of the land, the second chamber that ends up voting on and finally passing bills as an elected body? Like, you know, obviously, if you and I didn't understand how Canada actually worked and functioned, we would be like, well, yeah, of course. Like, what do you mean? The prime minister gets to say, okay, you so-and-so. But turns out it ends up being this weird combination of factors where no one cares who the senators are it's all largely sort of honorary positions about you know if if terry fox was still alive today for example he might be a senator um you know that's the kind of people that end up there and because they don't have election pressure you end up with actual sober second thoughts on legislation in many cases sometimes they just railroad things through and there's like yeah whatever and they don't seem to do their job and spend too much money expensing things for cottages but other other than those sort of little mishaps you again end up with this weird system like nobody reveres a senator i don't even think i can name a senator right now um you know we're not talking about mitch mcconnell all the time up here for example it seems to be follow the same sort of logic the senate does i mean that, that the rest of this conversation has sort of followed wonky system it's an appointed body who the hell wants that but in reality it seems to work out in many different ways yeah, yeah. I would say I guess I'm probably a little more skeptical about the Senate in that I wonder, are they effective in that, you know, house of uh, sober second thought? Um, First, they I have to be to think, sober. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I think, you know, maybe we could, you know, uh, you know in, in theory, eliminate the Senate and, and not miss it very much. And, oh, but that's I mean, uh, that's what the positive. Yeah. I don't mean I don't mean like, yeah, they are definitely checking legislation. Let's keep them. But I mean, that's yeah. kind of the funny thing, too, is this supposedly consequential upper house is something we could literally just get rid of and save money uh it, it's not actually this these revered positions of power that you know on paper you think that they might actually be the way i described the system yeah yeah well of course so, you know the, the senate comes of, from the idea that yeah well we want to have democracy uh but let's not get carried away we want to have some checks on what the house of commons might decide to do uh by having you know these uh you know i guess uh, in the original conception a, a better class of people um, who would uh, put the brakes on any crazy ideas. But that's, of course, completely unacceptable these days. And I mean, there are various proposals for strengthening the Senate, um, some of which you know seem appealing on paper and make sense. But again, it comes back to this thing of like, you know, do we want to mess with it? Uh, an elected Senate sounds appealing in some ways. What are the results of that going to be? And one thing I think that we need to be cognizant of is uh, the sort of the tendency for log rolling. So as libertarians, classical liberals, we talk about public choice theory a lot. And one of the things that you could potentially get from there is politicians who might be opposed to each other or have 
different interests then agree to horse trade uh, in order to get, you know, I'll vote for the thing that you want and you vote for the thing that I want. We might see that relationship sort of come up from uh, having a more powerful Senate. So I think we're probably in agreement on this, that we're okay with a weak Senate that uh, sits around and they have their conversations. And sometimes they do some white papers that are quite good. They were well out ahead of the government uh, in terms of things like de- uh, decriminalizing and legalizing uh, marijuana. But mm. for the most part, I don't think Canadians think about the Senate at no. all. But, but even then, like, you know, for example, that that uh, decriminalizing marijuana situation too, that's something that very might have, but it may very well not have happened if that was an elected body, for example. I'm not saying I'm, I'm a, a proponent of an appointed Senate. I'm more talking about I, I am observing sort of this interesting, like, you know, on paper, why the heck is this working to some degree type of situation. Yep. So, so I, I mean, like, I think that was a great chat. I think we sort of toured some, you know, your ideas on how you feel about the monarchy and, and sort of the, uh, the symbolism versus what's really going on, the benefits and so on and so forth. So I think it's time that we bring our conversations in full circle, put a finer point on it. As you very well know, I want to make sure the guest has the last word in every episode. That means you this time around, Matt. So let me officially ask you to end things off. What do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on how you feel about the monarchy, both symbolically and practically? In other words, if you wanted someone to take away one or two or just a few thoughts, if anything from the conversation, what would that actually be? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, sometimes institutions are complex. Institutions are often complex, uh, hard to understand how they work, why they work, what it is that makes them successful, what it is that might might make them failures. And and I think the monarchy is a a great example of that. There's a previous episode of this podcast with Victor Munez Fraticelli uh, talking about the absurdity of the monarchy and how this is in the service of liberalism. I recommend people check that out for uh, another great take on uh, on what the monarchy is. But before we close, I do want to ask, because our question here today is not just what do I think about the monarchy, what do we think about the monarchy? And in some way, this is a bit of a, a summation to conversations that we've had ongoing over the years. I know that you're maybe a little more skeptical of uh, of some aspects, and I think you've been very generous in, in agreeing with me in a lot of stuff. And I'm not sure if that's because you're being a polite host or because I've made such convincing arguments over the years. So before we close, I'd love to get your thoughts on the record of what you would say to the question, how do you feel about the monarchy? Yeah, I would say the best way to summarize it is I, I think, I, I do truly think, and I'm not saying this for effect, I, I, I think symbolically it is absolutely disgusting. I think that it is not a good idea, you know, symbolically that we have this sort of thing. I think the whole thing is silly. Um, not, not in like a, the cutesy sort of way that we would both also agree on on a different level. I, I you know, I, I think that it it's... um. It's very odd. I find it personally very disturbing, you know, that people were were crying over this and, uh, at, you know, when the, when the queen died and stuff like that. I mean, I think when some people tie it to their own nostalgia, for example, as they remember her face when they got off a boat in the port of Halifax as an immigrant, like that, you know, there might be some own like, you know, sort of personal tie into that. And that makes sense that that might be embedded in someone's experience, that sort of symbolism. But beyond that, the fact that people... Um, do feel tied to uh, the monarchy in any way. The fact that there are people just being born and crowned. Um, I, I do sometimes without exaggeration, sort of liken it around to like, imagine if we were in the Mississippi somewhere and we said, you know, the slave owner doesn't actually hold slaves anymore. Uh, they don't actually really kind of own this property, but you know, for historical sake and some of the ceremony and ribbon cutting, uh, they do live in a plantation and some people, you know, kind of role play around them and so on and so forth. I actually, you know, sometimes think of, from a symbolic perspective, think of something interesting to think about because uh, monarchies have not uh, been a good thing uh, in reality many years ago. So symbolically, I think some more of that should be in people's consideration when they think of, you know, what the heck that is. However, on the practical side, I actually almost agree entirely with everything you're saying in this conversation because I think when people do take a nice hard look at the way the Canadian system functions with how that symbolism interacts with the actual day-to-day governance and ultimately authority, whether I like it or not, over my life, um, there are positive effects. So I think from a practical perspective, I think there actually are benefits just to having this sort of political economy, if you will, of how this stuff interacts. So I've I've always been on board with that. I think I just take a harsher point of view on whether or not it's actually okay to have these kinds of symbols around. Um, 
you know, because I because I do ultimately think it's ridiculous that, um, you know, you know, like I, I just I just think it's funny in general. You know, when I'm looking at these people, Buckingham Palace, people walking around, servants, people carrying things. I think the whole thing is just. Like, but but ultimately, from a practical perspective, I think uh, I think I've always been on the same page as you as far as uh, some of the benefits there. I I, I don't yeah. I do not want uh, you know some people some people might think, for example, if you put this on a spectrum somewhere, that a republic with a uh, president is a step. Uh, it's not necessarily an anarchist utopia, but it's a step down from monarchy, for instance, and we're heading the right direction. I think symbolically, if we were drawing on a whiteboard, absolutely. So it's one of these funny contradictions. Practically, not so much, as we've seen. Because uh, yeah. I think, the, as you said, the relationship people have with the, the presidency and how that works in the United States is actually far worse than people have it with our prime minister or even the royal family as well, so... It, it, it's very nuanced. It's very interesting. But from a practical perspective, I've always thought you made great points on that. Yeah. You know, so I've always loathe to uh, pass an opportunity to make a Monty Python reference. So any listeners who have not seen Monty Python search for the Holy Grail, there's a great exchange there with a guy named Dennis the Peasant, who is upset about the institution of the monarchy. Um, and, uh, and the movie is sort of based on the legend of King Arthur. And so, you know, King Arthur says he is king because the lady of the lake tossed him the sword. And, you know, Dennis says something to the effect of strange women lying in ponds, distributing scimitars is no basis for a system of government perhaps the last word the final takeaway that i'd like people to have is maybe it is at least symbolically at least symbolically yeah in terms of how it takes away and has those practical effects as i was saying um but nevertheless i think um you know i think that was a great chat matt i hope you enjoyed it i think it was great getting this conversation out there and i i i did enjoy having it with you so uh i'm not sure if you wanted to add anything else we kind of changed the format a little bit the episode but I, i'm happy to leave it there if you are if you feel like we kind of summed it up nicely i'll just say always a pleasure i enjoyed the conversation me as well The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.